0: hey interior designers and design lovers welcome to the daniel house book club where we're slowly making our way through the eight books every interiors lover should have read according to architectural digest i'm your host peter spalding the chief creative officer of daniel house club where we've just launched new shipping options for all our designer members Standard curbside delivery is always just 10% of your order, but now you can choose so much more, including white glove if that's what is best for your project. If you're a designer and you're not shopping with Daniel House Club, you could be saving yourself so much hassle, so head to danielhouse.club and sign up now. So, we're on our last week looking at the book 1,000 Chairs. I began our six-week look As I've said a bunch of times, somewhat lamenting the lack of longer history portrayed here, but also the lack of celebrated upholstered pieces. There are a few upholstered pieces featured, though, so before we leave this book behind for Mark Hampton's famous book, Mark Hampton on Decorating, next week, I thought we'd take a look at them. A real art historian would catalog these 10 or 15 chairs I'd like to run through more caringly, but I'm going to lump them perhaps a bit carelessly into the beautiful, the useful, and the purposely bizarre. What I mean by beautiful is that the creators of this category still held it to be true that there was some universal beauty worth working toward. This covers a chair by uh, Emile Jacques Rollman. Uh, And although I have studied all of this stuff, I, as I've said many times before, have no ability to pronounce the words of other languages, so I'm sorry for always butchering the names of these great designers. Um, Anyway, it covers a chair by Ruhlman, uh, and one by William Haynes from 1958, and I think maybe a Henry Vendevelde chair called Havana from 1980. Uh, from 1897 though I think maybe my research will disprove me on that Uh, what I mean by useful is that the creators of this group of pieces is no longer concerned with beauty as the primary achievement their product must serve the body comfortably and must do it with as efficient a use of materials and energy as possible and this covers a lot of the pieces I'm interested in Uh, And the purposely bizarre category covers object whose creators meant to mock good taste and the notion of possible beauty by creating kitsch, throwaway work. This is the early part of the movement anyway. As it went on, the kitsch and disposable actually grew, I think, into more sculptural works, which, though no one would ever admit it, may actually have been attempts at the beautiful or at some universal beauty which we can't say ever really exists anymore because that would be uh, against our common understanding of art. What's important to remember is that today we live in a world filled with people interested in all three of these categories and usually all at one time or often all at one time. Usually our clients are interested in the useful, followed closely by the beautiful, and don't particularly want to engage in mockery when it comes to their own home and all the money they'll be spending on creating it with us. But still, I do think the mockery has its place and pushes our collective boundary of taste in new directions, so it is interesting to know about. Let's start with Han- Henry van Velde, since it's his chair that comes first. He's best known as being a leading proponent of the Art Nouveau, which is known for its sinuous, asymmetrical lines and often is informed by nature. And this is a movement that took place around the turn of the 20th century. Van de Velde is from Belgium, but Art Nouveau was prominent in France, um, particularly those beautiful Parisian cafes and. Um, uh, subway or metro entrance stations by Hector Guimard. Um so Vandevelde's Havana chair is not particularly important and looks somewhat like an uncomfortable ish club chair. I've never sat in it, so I can't be sure. Um, but its oak wood frame does F curve or S curve its way down from um its button-tufted leather upholstered back. So it's a tight leather seat, which is low to the ground, and everywhere that leather is meeting wood, we have nail head trim. And it looks very handmade, which is not really surprising given that this is an artistic movement related to, but not exactly the same as, the arts and crafts, um, which is all about Handmaking and cottage industry as a key component, but Art Nouveau is more forward-looking than the arts and crafts, and so is Van de Velde. Uh, the movement engages or often relies on contemporary materials like glass and steel, and it's reactive against a half a decade or a half a century period of revivals like Greek Revival, Gothic Revival. Egyptian revival, all these weird sort of theatrical things that we think of when we think of Britain during the Victorian period. Uh, Like I said, the Havana chair is not especially groundbreaking, except that it demonstrates, like a bunch of other chairs from its time, an eagerness to break the divisions between fine art, applied art, and building art, and to create a space where furniture art uh, and or the art of making furniture, the art of painting, and the art of building are all expressed um, as equally important as and sort of as a singular work or what we um, art historical people call Gesamt Kunstwerk. Uh, but Van de Velde we know, wasn't all about beauty. He was in an interesting moment in history where beautiful was still believed possible, or beauty was still believed possible, but only if it was also useful. He believed the society of the future would have no place for anything which was not useful to everyone. To this end, he helped found the Deutsche Werkbund, which allied manufacturers and designers in the production of goods. Van de Velde is interesting to contrast with a designer like Rollman, whose work continues to enjoy cult status among the more traditionally bent top-end design enthusiasts. Roman believed trends were born amongst the very rich, as only they had the assets to commission them. Um, and he famously said, or I guess is known to have said a clientele of artists intellectuals and connoisseurs of modest means is very congenial but they are not in a position to pay for all the research the experimentation the testing that is needed to develop to develop a new design if you're an interior designer you know uh, that feels really really true you need to have a wealthy client that is very helpful Uh, roman's work is characterized by extremely fine craftsmanship, the use of very high-quality materials like rosewood and shark skin, and by simplicity of line. It It represents the height of Parisian Art Deco fashion. I think the reason particularly traditionalists love Roman is that his work also sort of represents the very highest, most restrained expression the classical language could possibly achieve. It is stripped to the essence, whereas later works or works by modernists like Le Corbusier might be considered just stripped to the bone. Roman's business was also interesting. His father ran a residential construction business focused on interior construction, painting, and wallpapering. And he took over the business after his father's death in the early 1900s and brought on a design partner, Pierre Laurent. The income from the construction business allowed them high production budgets. It might take eight months for a piece of furniture to be produced and only to be sold for significantly less than it would cost to actually make. So their furniture industry was money hemorrhaging, Um there's a beautiful upholstered piece included here in our book though it's called i think the defense chair from about 1920 which has ribbed tusk-like front legs that s-curve with no break to form the back seat but the piece that probably is worth the most attention is the pallet chair from around 1925. these are available in all sorts of exotic woods as many of his pieces are but This was one piece Roman studied for possible mass production, and there are existing prototypes of this chair cast in metal and enameled. If you're not familiar with the pallet chair, Google it. It has a wonderful scoop back with a very wide splat that really hugs the body. Though it really owes much to the classical world, its sleek silhouette works effortlessly in contemporary settings. It's really too bad plans for mass production never moved forward, or I think we'd be talking about this chair as a staple. Finally, in this category of beautiful, we have the William Haynes Brentwood chair. Haynes was an American designer who began his career as a Hollywood movie star, just as the industry made its shift from silent films to sound. Once one of the most bankable actors, he was fired from MGM for refusing to cover up his relationship with his male partner, Jimmy Shields. So he pursued a career in interior design instead, during which he worked for incredibly wealthy clients, including Betsy Bloomingdale, wife of the department store owner Alfred Bloomingdale. Modernism was already in full swing throughout the Western world, But as we know, Hollywood has a need for everything to be glamorous, and the rich and famous were not quite ready to embrace molded plastic as dining chairs. Much of Haynes' furniture is quite low to the ground, including the Brentwood chair, which has a thick, wide tufted seat, splayed wooden legs, and a very wide upholstered Klizmo style back. This is the sort of occasional chair that is perfect for a party. It is tailored but informal and has an openness that allows the body to try out a number of positions without becoming uncomfortable. It is armless, but the curve of the padded back offers enough support to linger if that's what you want to do. One upholstered chair included here that straddles the world of pursuing beauty and pursuing utility is an easy chair designed by Paul Laszlo for one of his clients. Paul Laszlo, a Jew who immigrated from Hungary slash Germany to the United States in 1936 to escape the Nazis is definitely a modernist, but described his own work as possessing a charm that some of the other modernists may have lacked. Laszlo, already having a far-reaching reputation upon arrival here in the States, also worked for very high-profile clients. He preferred furniture with ample proportions, which made is made obvious by the chair in question a deep wide club chair with a tightly upholstered base tight back and a loose box seat cushion the only element separating this from one designed for supreme comfort is its highly polished wooden arms supported by wishbone brackets even these though are generously wide This doesn't look like a chair we've known before, but it's a far cry from a machine for living. By the late 40s and early 50s, the American public finally had a willingness to get into the streamlined aesthetics of the machine for living ideas Le Corbusier and his comrades had espoused almost 30 years earlier in Europe, but really never um, had a desire to forego the comfort some of those ideas entailed. Laszlo and Haynes, delivered something a little more digestible. Haynes Brentwood chair remains popular today, and Laszlo did work with Herman Miller for a period of time, but it sounds like he really didn't like that arrangement. So the chair I've just mentioned by him is named for a client for whom he designed it, and though copies of the profile became ubiquitous in the 1950s, I'm not sure how many are really credited to him. I'm sure one of you listening knows exactly. Uh, Okay, so we have to acknowledge that some of the pieces from the Machine for Living era are upholstered. These are pieces that are ostensibly all about function. Ludwig Mies van der Rohe's uh, Barcelona chair is probably the most obvious example. And actually, it's beautifully upholstered. With two thick, button-tufted, high-quality leather box cushions supported by leather strapping. And this is a good time to identify that Mies tends to stand out amongst his austere peers as being geared toward the highest quality and having a willingness to add decorative elements to improve his designs, uh, even if his contemporaries would um, not appreciate his application of ornament. His famous buildings all enjoy glass and steel or I should say, employ glass and steel curtain walls, but also have um, completely useless eye beams applied to their faces, which add dimension, rhythm, and oftentimes exaggerate the verticality of the structure. Uh, they're, they're just really, really beautiful, we should say. Um, these applied beams are oftentimes made out of bronze and are joined uh, by solid blocks of marble and granite as his favorite building materials. I should say that I personally hate Barcelona chairs, but it's not Mises' fault. I've just seen them so frequently in every single lobby everywhere around the world, um, and this must be because at the beginning it's a very very good design Uh, that really resonates with people. As our authors of this book say, it makes a lot of connections at a lot of different levels. Um, Marcel Breuer, who we've already talked about a few times, was typically known to design chairs with tubular steel and cane or leather, but he too has an upholstered chair included in this book. It's a club chair he designed for the Summerfield House, which is a project nearly all the departments of the Bauhaus collaborated on via the architectural office of Walter Gropius whose client was in the timber industry. It's really exciting to see how tightly knit the worlds we're discussing truly are. Well, much of the furnishings were Breuer design, the stained glass in the stair hall of this house was by Joseph Albers, whose book we covered right before this book, uh, The Interaction of Color, if you weren't with us or don't remember. Anyway, this isn't one of Breuer's more important chairs and truly doesn't look much like the other pieces we know him for. It's got blocky wooden legs and even blockier upholstered arms, seat, and back. It's sort of cubist in form and looks horribly uncomfortable, but we will never know because Summerfield House was in Berlin and was completely destroyed in World War II. Um, There's also Finnish designer Alvar Altos tank chair which has a fairly thick tightly upholstered seat and back supported completely by bentwood legs that curve back on themselves to become the arms as well and to support the back um a somewhat common-looking chair, I'd argue, to us now. This design really did test the limits of bentwood plywood at the time it was introduced. And of the three uh, chairs I've just named from the sort of useful category of designers, I think this functional chair really does meet the use category well. It's great to provide a comfortable place to sit, and it also pushes the boundaries of technology forward by relying on bent wood in a way that was not historically possible. A modernist who I knew nothing about except that I knew he had one very famous table, Isamu Noguchi, had an upholstered sofa included in this book, Like his table for Herman Miller, Noguchi's cloud sofa is sort of sculptural and amorphous and pairs with a kidney-shaped ottoman. Uh, It sort of looks like a Vladimir Kagan sofa that hasn't quite grown up. Uh, Rare as it is, though, if you can find an original, it'll cost you way more than a Vladimir Kagan sofa at upwards of half a million dollars. Um, Given... Naguchi's relationship with Herman Miller and Noel, it's kind of weird to me that we haven't seen more of this particular sofa, though per- perhaps it's because it is a little ungainly, so maybe it didn't meet the public well. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, going on a little tangent here, though, Naguchi's life is actually really, really fascinating. He was born in Los Angeles, and his father was a Japanese poet who lived and enjoyed critical acclaim in the United States. Um, but moved back to Japan shortly after his birth and was largely absent for uh, his son's life. It took a long time for Noguchi to gain serious commissions, although he was able to get by sculpting busts of important people who... um, would pay him after he learned uh, to sculpt from the sculptor Goodson Borglum, whose most famous work is Mount Rushmore. Uh, His first real work in product design didn't come until he worked for Zenith on the design of their radio nurse, the world's first baby monitor. Then when Pearl Harbor was attacked, Noguchi tried to help stop Japanese internment cap camps, but ended up volunteering at one where he designed theoretical baseball fields, swimming pools, and parks, um, which he soon realized the government had no intention of building. And actually, when he tried to leave the internment camp, they identified him as a suspicious person, and it took quite a while for him to be able to go back to his then-home state of New York. All this happened before he ever partnered with Herman Miller and designed some of the most iconic pieces of mid-century furniture we have today. How overtly useful the Noguchi cloud sofa was isn't really apparent to me, except probably it prompted new types of conversational arrangements. Um, but regardless, it's time to move on to some pieces that are overtless, overtly purposefully bizarre and sometimes distasteful as youth culture began to reign mockery of establishment even found its way into furniture design take willie landell's throwaway sofa from 1965 or particularly particularly rodney kinsman's f range from 1966 as two examples the throwaway looks like something you'd throw away no i'm kidding I mean, maybe it does, but it looks like your standard tuxedo sofa where the arms and back are all of uniform height and very taut and rectangular, except this one has innards that are made up of um, nothing like you'd find in a typical piece of upholstery, instead a giant block of polyurethane foam, which has then been covered in vinyl. And the F-type is of similar interior construction but with a sort of slouchier stance uh, made even more lamentable by horizontal channeling and then um, all of this clad in a wet look vinyl. And I remember sitting on chairs like this in the cafeteria at the YMCA while I waited for my brother's swimming lessons to end and my skin sort of feeling like it was peeling off and my limbs collapsing all at once because my body was so tired of sitting on something so hard um and i hope this movement never happens again anyway uh topping the charts for mockery and kitsch is arkazum associati's safari from 1968 in its full form safari represents a freestanding conversation pit White fiberglass cubes have circular seats upholstered in a faux leopard print carved out of their masses. Each cube adjoins another to create a circle. Hideous as this specific example is, the conversation pit was huge and deserves probably its own episode. My uncle had one built into his house and I remember playing with all my cousins there by day and then nestling in to watch movies with my whole extended family at night. It was bizarre and aesthetically questionable, to be sure, but not a movement wholly without merit. When I think of grouping regular furniture, I try to do it roughly in a square formation because people are comfortable interacting with one another in this way. The conversation pit has built-in consideration of human interaction to its credit. As these bizarre forms wore on, I think designers sort of tired of striving to be controversial and began swinging back toward trying to be something closer to beautiful and useful at once. A good example of that state, which I'd argue design remains in today, is Tom Dixon's Bird Chaise Long from 1990. It's not really like any furniture forms we've known before. It's still textile-covered polyurethane foam, but it puts the body in a comfortable position Uh, and it occupies a room like a piece of well-balanced sculpture meant to be taken in from multiple angles. It's both tranquil and seemingly in motion at once. Maybe being sculptural isn't the primary purpose of a chair, but this one seems to work as an art form and as something to sit on. There are more pieces of upholstery in the book 1,000 Chairs, and these are just a few of the highlights that I've enjoyed. Um, Still, I would say that none really rely on classic upholstery methods, and as we have more and more inquiries about custom upholstery and help specifying various types of seating, I'm thinking we should have an episode dedicated completely to everything that's possible when you sort of begin building a good old-fashioned sofa or club chair for a client. So um, these have been some interesting chairs. I hope you'll go uh, fall in love with one or more of the designers that I've mentioned. Um, And in the meantime, have a great week, and we'll be back next week to talk about Mark Hampton's book, uh, Mark Hampton on Decorating, which I'm super excited about. So I'll talk to you soon.